lovely to welcome everyone here to this evening's lecture. Uh, my name is Sarah Franklin, and I'm the acting director of the BIOS Center. Um, I'll be the chair for our annual public lecture this evening, and I'm very pleased to be able to introduce our distinguished speaker, Professor Raina Rapp. Um, Raina is one of the world's leading and most influential medical anthropologists. Her pioneering book, Testing Women, Testing the Fetus, Amniocentesis in America, is one of the most influential medical ethnographies ever published. Along with her NYU colleagues, Emily Martin and Faye Ginsberg, Raina has been instrumental in widening the study of reproduction and reproductive technologies, as well as launching the anthropology of science. Her work is exemplary, both in its moving, accessible, and illuminating content, but also in its form. A gifted writer and speaker, she also shows how and why ethnographic data matter more than almost any other anthropologist I know. Any of you who have taught this book will know what I mean. Rain is also one of the founders of feminist anthropology, um, and thus of one of the most influential trajectories of contemporary feminist thought. Her pioneering anthology, Towards an Anthropology of Women, published in 1975, remains a remarkably prescient and synthetic text, combining chapters on everything from evolution and sex to subsistence modes of production, the origin of the family, matriarchy as a form of power, the public-private dichotomy, love, kinship, capitalism, work, aboriginality, pollution, foraging, gossip, imperialism, child-rearing, and marriage, um, <laughs> among other topics. This, this is the collection in which Gail Rubin's famous treatise, The Traffic in Women, Notes on the Political Economy of Sex, was published, um, launching a debate about the quote-unquote domestication of raw materials that has not diminished in intensity in the age of egg trafficking, organ trafficking, and international adoption. Indeed, it would be hard to underestimate the importance of the feminist contribution from anthropology, not only to the anthropology of reproduction or the new kinship studies, but to science and technology studies, and in particular, what are now increasingly called biosocial studies. What has been important about this contribution is both theoretical and methodological. Theoretically, questions of stratification, structural subordination, and what might be called the ambivalence of progress have remained squarely in the frame. Methodologically, these general themes have been made empirically local by ethnographers such as Reina. Together, the resulting matrix of comparative studies now available on topics such as reproductive technology has indeed made a new kind of comparative biosocial anthropology not only possible or viable, but vibrant and prolific. It is consequently both an honor and a pleasure to welcome Raina here to the LSE on the occasion of the fifth annual BIOS public lecture. I'm looking forward very much to her talk, and so it seems are the many people who could not be here but have asked if it will be added to the LSE's podcast collection. And we are indeed podding this event. <laughs> so if anyone does not wish to be recorded, please would they exercise their right to remain silent during the question period. <laughs> so thank you very much. And please join me in welcoming our speaker.
Thank you, Sarah, for that very generous introduction. Can I be heard? Is this okay? Great. I hope I can live up to all the eminence you've ascribed to me. And let me just say of that very early uh, toward an anthropology women collection that Sherry Ortner, in reviewing it, wrote, from apes to socialism, far out. And that's kind of how I feel about it now. But in any case, I'm deeply grateful for the invitation to speak as um, the LSE lecturer tonight. And I thank Sarah very much for that generous introduction and the many people at BIOS who have made this trip possible. So um, let me begin. In 1998, I watched Paul Krasinski, a pseudonym for a young East European MD-PhD, explain optimistically the electrophoresis results of his DNA ligation on a gene responsible for particularly intractable and lethal forms of epidermolysis bullosa, which I'll refer to as EB. It's a genetic skin disease. He had very great problems getting his gene gun to yield results in mice models, but he remained extremely enthusiastic about developing a conveyor system for gene therapy. Older, more experienced researchers were far more cautious, and by 2000, the NIH and the FDA in Washington were holding conferences rethinking gene therapy after many technical failures and the high-profile death of Jesse Gelsinger in a gene therapy experiment in Philadelphia. Although gene therapy turned out to be a highly problematic concept and practice, this interdisciplinary work would later be dubbed translational medicine, a key phrase at the present moment in NIH funding priorities. It was a time of great social, economic, and scientific volatility. Gene therapy was in the air and in the headlines. The government was engaged in a race with private sector brilliant scientific upstarts to map the human genome. Family activism was raising research money quite successfully, and the American public was riveted. The search for experimental gene therapies took place in laboratories far removed from the distraught and often mourning families of children born with severe versions of EB, this genetic skin disease. Among the scientists where I was working, many expressed and acted out quite serious connections to the intimate intergenerational suffering that produced not only their tissue culture, but voluntary health group meetings at which they frequently served as plenary and workshop speakers and sadly much too often as witnesses to children's funerals. Family activism often raised money for scientific research, provided the tissue banks, and notably, occasionally placed parents in the list of authors of scientific papers and government funding and outreach networks. Laboratory and lifespan were thus braided together for both scientists and families whose members lived with genetic disorders. During this research, I was privileged to participate in a lot of corridor talk. Informally, many genetic researchers spoke of their deep ambivalence toward family activism when it breached a line they continually had to withdraw to redraw as scientists in conducting their own experiments. As one very talented head of a lab put it to me, quote, I'd grant the families anything, anything to relieve their suffering and make their children well. But no amount of reading and volunteering is going to give them the background to decide on the direction my research should be going in. Yet since that time, the role of family activism has only grown stronger at diverse sites such as the NIH, the Genetic Alliance, in the US and UK autism networks, and in many other venues throughout the developed world. 
As Gil Ayal, a sociologist at Columbia University now completing a book on the rise of public awareness of autism put it, quote, a hundred percent of this research is funded directly or indirectly by parent activism. Without their creativity and insistence, autism would still be an underfunded backwater disorder. Scientists express a range of reactions to this heightened climate of activism. They welcome the resources and sometimes the opportunities for the ethical modest interventions it brings. Some scientists also express skepticism about the populism, rejection of expertise, and contested meanings of peer review that come with the can-do ideology inspired by an activist business model making claims on the reorganization of science. Yet as that neoliberal model gained velocity in the last decade, Genome mapping and sequencing, which had once been taken many months to complete by hand, quickly went to semi-automatic and then fully automated. Scientist sequences were posted every 24 hours on a publicly accessible database. And the stock of Perkin Elmer, maker of the sequencers, which stood at the intersection of public cor corporate technological genome mapping, went zooming up. Many US-based scientists may be wary of the velocity with which their hard and patient research must now be reported out to fit this zooming business model. Yet they laud the return of rational science policy as a promissory note in President Obama's inauguration speech and subsequent science-oriented stimulus packages. Active and activist science therefore constitutes a great space of inquiry for an anthropologist interested in how expert tools, assemblages, methods and ideas collide, clash, and sometimes harmonize in the global system of scientific training, practice, and influence. This system is, of course, wide open to its environment, including its very political environment. A recognition of this environmental openness also constitutes epigenetics, a key subject in tonight's talk. I mentioned the recent and largely failed history of gene therapy and its promissory message en passant only to make an obvious point. Scientific complexes are forward-thinking, unstable objects of investigation. Otherwise translated, fashions in scientific research come and go despite the triumphalist assurances which must structurally be written into the promissory notes of grantsmanship. The majority never pan out, but must be described as the hope of the future if they are to raise funds in the present tense. What remains after the grant is over includes a communicative network of researchers enhanced by what they have learned together, sometimes by collaboration, often through competition in their wider communities. And of course, the marvelous tools that their team's creativity and potent funding orchestrate into existence are a legacy that supports future techno-scientific investigations. So let me tell you a little bit about what I've been up to most recently. At the present moment, Faye Ginsberg, my colleague and dear friend at New York University, also in the anthropology department, Faye and I have embarked on fieldwork that focuses on cultural innovation in learning disabilities. Science, of course, plays a part. Our focus grew from a simple question that two of us had batted around informally for years. As parents of youngsters with learning disabilities, we wondered where all these special ed kids were when we were growing up. We hadn't noticed them before, and where did they come from? Our first efforts at investigation led to an equally simple answer. They hadn't yet been invented. I hasten to add this doesn't mean that they didn't exist, for many lived <coughs> under highly stigmatized labels of lazy, slow, mildly mentally retarded, minimally brain damaged, and the like. 
But what Ian Hacking calls the looping effects of labeling into existence a group of people who then perform the behaviors associated with the dynamic nominalism of their new classification, uh, escalating their own and more widespread consciousness of newly solidified categories, had not yet produced a visibly marked group of high-cost special ed students. Now in the United States, special ed student population, special education, have doubled around the country each decade since the 1970s. Currently, diagnosed children constitute 15% of our school age population and a higher percentage of our school budgets. They're expensive to educate. There are 13 federal categories under which diagnosed pupils enti are entitled to remedial services and accommodations. Although the annual mandated individual pupil and review focuses on shortcomings in special ed students, our research highlights the larger social map within which the growing world of remedial and individualized education has taken shape. Its terrain was darkly, deeply marked by the movement for deinstitutionalization in the 1970s, which sent generations of institutionalized children and young adults back to their families and communities. It was shaped by epic struggles for civil rights involving the conflation of race and IQ testing in the United States and the rapid resegregation of classrooms after Brown versus the Board of Education of Topeka, Kansas, the landmark case that officially ended segregation in the United States, with the disproportionate assignment of African-American children to special ed segregated classroom. That is, as soon as they were desegregated legally, they were resegregated through the use of special ed categories kind of behind the backs of the law. These injustices were all legally contested. There's a long history of legislation and litigation that has to do with race and IQ. A growing constituency of activist disabled citizens also drew inspiration and creativity from those civil rights struggles by the 1980s and 1990s, embracing many of its strategies and inventing others of its own. In mapping the LD, the learning disability world, we find ample room for parent activism and increasingly young adult LD activism initiated by those who grew up with the benefits and burdens of federal funding and labels. Ethnographic methodology thus brings me onto multiple research terrains ranging from public middle schools where I observe college students with LD and ADHD labels mentor youngsters who now struggle with the same descriptions, that is each one reach one kinds of self-help, films festivals where creative and controversial representations of life with disability are shown, homes in Harlem and Astoria which are uh, much more modest income than the privileged neighborhoods in which the universities are usually found in Manhattan, where families are willing to tell their stories of nurturing a child with an IEP, that means an individual educational plan, kind of like your statementing, that is the individual is identified, so those are the families I tend to go talk to, and interviews with friends and neighbors whose children have diagnoses that were only revealed when I mentioned my work. Like all fieldwork projects, this one is unruly and expansive, seeping into many layers of educational, legal, familial, religious, community, and personal life. Relevant to tonight's discussion, let's see if this will work, yeah, right, <laughs> is that I'm working in two laboratories with two different scientific research groups. The first is neuroscientific and focuses on picturing and interpreting children's brain differences. The second is psychiatric, aiming its work at the epigenetic effects of social stress and paternal age on children's mental disorders. In both, I want to understand how scientists think about childhood brain differences and neuroplasticity. 
Both laboratory teams are highly interdisciplinary, benefiting from the robust scientific productivity which had accompanied the reduction of mind to brain and the prolific work accomplished during and after the NIH's decade of the brain in the 1990s. So that was a time when science was really funded to think about the brain as a physiological entity and to dispense with the idea that the mind was a separate entity of its own. The study of neuroplasticity and complex childhood mental disorders most abstractly grouped together by one research psychiatrist I observe as social incapacities, I love that label, social incapacities, it just widens out the world there, is currently undergoing rapid transformations in part under the pressurized resources provided by the NIH's roadmap process which has put translational research from bench to bedside as both government and pharmaceutical publicists love to say into the center of the funding agenda. A search for new pharmaceuticals often described as personalized medicine, although tailored medicine might be a more appropriate term, is central to this funding endeavor, whether or not individual scientists and their working groups are active in its pursuit. At least three diverse foci are important to scientists who study childhood cognitive and affective impairments, and these are in widespread interdisciplinary research. First, a lively area of research occurs on the site of the older study of behavioral genetics. The study of pathological phenotypes as they run in lineages has been reclassified. Scientists now study endophenotypes in research on autism, schizophrenia, ADHD, and dyslexia. Such studies of families at elevated risk for syndromes and disorders have been given a molecular assist in the field of neurogenetics. Here, scientists search for haplotypes, stretches of DNA that travel together across the generations in lineages where these problematic phenotypes exist. Since the contribution of each haplotype to the disorder of interest is small and not usually expressed, that is, you can get the haplotype without getting the, the disorder or the syndrome, um, the scientists reason that something environmental in the broadest sense must be activating the stretch of DNA selectively in some members, but not in all. That something is epigenetic. Oh dear, this slide got a little bit muddled. Um, that is, it lives in the relation between genotype and phenotype. It is active in the environment within which the whole organism, in this case a fetus, a child or an adolescent exposed to everything from neurochemical baths released in her developing brain by paternal or maternal exposures or the childhood benefits of enriched reading or the food she eats and the air she breathes, the environments into which she is transported by her parents' peregrinations through refugee camps or silk stocking zip codes. As the head of one of the labs has, that has welcomed me put it, quote, epigenetics as uh, epigenetic inheritance is the trans scientists love to make those little they're much better at this than, than I am epigenetic inheritance is the transmission of information to descendants that is not encoded at the nucleotide sequence level unlike DNA sequence these mechanisms can change during development and that's the point of it really so that there is now an epigenome as the scientists talk about it which sits on top of the genome and is in some senses responsible in ways they're trying to figure out for when the genome gets activated at different points in development the concept of epigenetic inheritance has a venerable history, traceable to C.H. Waddington who used the term in the 1940s to describe how genes might interact with their surroundings before the mechanisms of DNA replication had been explained. 
Epigenetics has more recently been used to describe the process of environmentally susceptible methylation and chromatin remodeling on cell surfaces. Tamed and operationalized through scientific methods of reduction, epigenetics can now be investigated in vitro, in vivo, and in silica. Thus, epigenetics as a concept and as a horizon of research and an assemblage of ideas and practices brings the environment back in. Beyond the genetic code reproduced uh, in cell nuclei by processes incre increasingly well characterized with the tools of molecular biology, there now stands another level of complexity. And indeed, I've been told that the historian of science, Robert Aronowitz, uh, would refer to that epigenetics as font business and all those things as uh, a word salad. And I think that's very appropriate. It's like you put up this chart and you put all the words there and you try to figure out what their label might be. If we had time, we could also talk about that metaphor of the book of life and what it has to do with the way in which they now see epigenetics as a font, you know, and that carrying it through to the print and the text-driven media as well. Epigenetics is like the, the revenge of Lamarck. It focuses on gene environmental interactions that may become heritable, accounting for the environmental activism and repression of human differences in genes, proteins, cells, and organs. But lest I seem too prescient, um, this was a slide that was in the group that one of the scientists I work with loaned to me because the scientists themselves think about Lamarckian tendencies and how there is this other way of understanding things in the history of evolutionary biology that was first pushed aside and has now come back in as well. Okay, so epigenetics and neurogenetics and trying to think about children's brains that way. That's the first point I wanted to make, that the scientists are on the trail of this question using this model of epigenetics. Second, scientists have long been involved in modeling human differences through animal, uh, animal analogies. Since Nuremberg, many experiments with humans have, of course, been outlawed, and there is now an ethics structure in place in many countries, this one absolutely leading the pack, um, whose express mission is the protection of human subjects to say nothing of the protection of university grants. Yet animal models, increasingly government-regulated, have accompanied scientific investigation for many de decades. Animals are good to think with, and we now have autistic mice, learning disabled nematodes, and memory-seeking sea slugs. As the Nobelist neuroscientist Eric Kandel so eloquently put it, quote, some of our neural uh, circuits were present in the cells of our most ancient ancestors and can be found today in our most distant and primitive evolutionary relatives. These creatures use the same molecules to organize their maneuvering through the environment that we use to govern our daily lives. With the routinization of knockout and knock-in genetic technologies, researchers can make mice and other animals whose genetic differences and consequences can be standardized and tracked over rapid cycle generations. These, in turn, give rise to new streamlined understandings of normative life form development and posited widespread mammalian capacities for learning and where it may go wrong, biologically speaking. The standardization of experimental organisms is an ongoing strategy in bench science that has provided new resources for manipulation in the study of learning. As one senior scientist put it, quote, mice are the genetic workhorses of medical research. You can knock out or knock in. You can't do that with rats. Actually, you can, but it's much, much harder. So mice really take the cake here. Behind this utilitarian manipulation of our rodent analogs are 
or perhaps our doppelgangers, lies a rich field of evolutionary analogical thought. Third, the relatively new technology of fMRI, that is functional magnetic resonance imaging, has powerfully increased the ability of neuroscientists and cognitive scientists to make computational models of the human brain as children and adults with distinct diagnoses or their controls perform various tasks, that is they stick them into the magnet and they watch their brains at work and they control uh, the, the, the child who has a diagnosis with a, uh, somebody who's matched who doesn't have that diagnosis. The lab in which I am currently working is distinguishing itself through its research on the youthful brain in resting states. Without tasks, the scientists reason, the resting brain of a child diagnosed with ADHD, Tourette's syndrome, or LD will exhibit low-level spontaneous activity, revealing how its neural networks are connected prior to learned or task-driven behavior. Although speaking as a mother as well as an anthropologist, who ever thought that a seven-year-old could ever lie still in a resting state and not be culturally induced already? I mean, they've spent all this time with their video games and their Simpsons movies and all the rest of it. So it's not like their resting state is acultural. Thus, based understandings of neurodiversity may be achieved. This makes the recruitment of children as research subjects or their controls central to the work of the lab, and I, that's a topic I'll return to in a moment. Mapping out effective neural networks is complex business. As one researcher commented, they want scans that show straightforward autism, but it's not that simple. As the public encounters and interprets brain images in common and diffuse sites, there is often a disjuncture between popular clinical and research understandings of the status of imaging. Indeed, the dis-ease of connecting specific images to affective state or action presents a long-standing philosophical conundrum, as Barbara Maria Stafford shows in Echo Objects, her very beautiful book about the neurosciences and the cognitive sciences, the art and humanities kind of crossover with them. Commenting on the evocative nature of knowledge produced in the neuro and cognitive sciences for humanity scholars, she observes that, quote, we can think of this array of images as cultural symbols with which to reach our biological selves. But they also capture how the independent and wandering brain mind discovers palpable connections at the interface between the body and the world. Stafford employs reigning theories and findings in contemporary neuroscience to illustrate their resonance with humanist thematics and paintings from early modern to contemporary times. Such theories can be used as a sieve through which we make meaning of prior representational didactics. Yet they also suggest to an anthropologist that the fractal of mind and brain compels us again and again to see iterations of an underlying platonic truth for which we are continually searching. In other words, the literate public is always already prepared for the arresting and compelling images which neuroscience helps to popularize. So there's again a kind of a feedback loop involved in this stuff where we've all been prepared to think about it and to see it and to believe in its veracity. Despite their computational, visual, and popular powers, correlations between mapping brain activity and diagnoses are associational, not causal. Quote, brain imaging is where infectious disease research was in the 1850s, before the understanding of bacteria reorganized the field, one pediatric researcher told us. They knew they had something important, but they didn't yet know what it was. Two young researchers in the pediatric neuroscience lab both speculated in their interviews with me on how different 
how difficult it would be to disentangle dyslexia, that is, reading disability as a diagnosis, from ordinary pediatric brain variants. One pointed out that 20% of children are now normed in U.S. schools as having difficulty learning to read, that is, the pressure to take the bottom 20% and get them up and running so they can pass the test at the same rate as everybody else is very, very much an escalating sort of process. He posited that these were the same kids who never liked school in the first place and now had a diagnosis based on a skill that was, as he said, man-made, not part of the children's regular biological repertoire. If a variant is this widespread, he asked, what does it mean to diagnose and remediate it? That is, if it's 20% of the population, what are we diagnosing here? <coughs> the other young scientists doubted that much could be done to clarify the explicitly biological base of dyslexia in New York City or any global city. Children, she pointed out, often come from households where multiple languages are spoken and read, so their strategies for learning to read, failing to read, or overcoming barriers to reading will be highly variable with the implication that those variations are going to be found in their brains as well. There isn't going to be a uniform pattern of what constitutes dyslexia is what she was saying. In both cases, the young scientists were pointing out that reading was in the world intractably connected to the times and places in which its absence as a social skill has quite recently taken on the shadow of a disability, that is, those children weren't labeled before this time in, in terms of their reading. Exciting as new work in neuroscience imaging may prove to be, we should remember the 19th century history of phrenology and craniometry, which were the sciences of their day. Scientific measurements of the brain have long been associated with putative differences in behavior, and as researchers are quick to say, the use of fMRI is in its infancy, a new research tool used for measuring differences in brain activity for everything from tics and shyness to reading, gambling, and addiction to su substances both licit and illicit. The quest for a neat association between a simple brain image and a complex behavior is beholden to a long genealogy and it has many covert and overt lines of influence in the world it seeks to simplify and represent. Although I've presented these three strains of brain research, that is behavioral and neurogenetics, animal modeling, and brain imaging as distinct, in real time, of course, they're very often intertwined in the scientific literature and, the and in the laboratories which have hosted my research. Scientific connections are both an artifact of big science and an impetus to it, as recent resources turned toward translational medicine illustrate. Contemporary scientific research requires and regularly requisitions at least three types of connection. First, and most obviously, uh, Sorry about that. First and most obviously, big scientific projects need substantial financial support. To fund an ongoing laboratory may take well-coordinated teamwork among secretaries, animal technicians, project managers, computer tech support, as well as the work of bench scientists who are simultaneously always fundraisers. Money must flow if labs and their skilled personnel are to be set working. A lab operates on a budgetary cycle that demands great discipline to grant deadlines, always specifying the search for an exciting and elusive new finding. Yet in reality, research is slow, arduous, requires patience and curiosity about failures, and it is full of cul-de-sacs. But money must continuously be searched and found to feed the engines of laboratory life. 
The funding sources for laboratories and their skilled laborers shift priorities over time, and the study of childhood chronic mental and affective disorders, including those which involve disordered learning, benefited from the NIH's Decade of the Brain. Under its funding mechanisms, many highly motivated researchers found themselves moving into interdisciplinary formations in which the study of the human brain became a magnet for their work. This capital-driven intervention into scientific curiosity is ongoing, as we note the very recent influence in the USA of a highly publicized NIH roadmap and its highlighting of translational research and translational medicine intended to move the utility of interdisciplinary research, quote, from bench to bedside, that phrase again. This slogan, beloved by the pharmaceutical companies where it originated and championed by the Genetic Alliance, a very savvy consortium of activist voluntary health groups that works closely with the NIH, now characterizes a direction in governmental funding. Money carves deep interdisciplinary tracks. Second, monetary magnets are a necessary but not a sufficient cause of scientific innovation. Megatopics like the study of brain science or the human genome or biosecurity incite the curiosity, reciprocity, and innovation of scientific researchers, and their expertise is key to scientific accomplishment. Under new interdisciplinary umbrellas, the migration of researchers and their shared topics becomes a practical possibility. Much learning and teaching permeates laboratory life as, for example, when research clinicians acquire skills in manipulating epidemiological data or molecular geneticists become sensitized to evolutionary biology's attention to age of onset and sex differences as key to understanding complex diseases. In one of the interdisciplinary scientific research groups whose weekly meetings I attend, for example, a toxicologist recently learned how to run fMRI brain scans, and in the other, a Japanese neuroscientist learned to administer psychophysical testing to New York City children. Such intellectual migrations of personnel and skills now occur at high velocity throughout the life sciences. I underline the speed with which scientific alliances and allegiances are forged. I've been struck, for example, by the increasingly dense presence of words like translational research and epigenetics in the conversations heard around the seminar tables at lab meetings, far more so than was even the case when I started in, sitting in on such meetings in the fall of 19, in 2007. So in two and a half years, the vocabulary has really gained velocity. Third, such scientific migrations are linked not only by funding streams and intellectual curiosity, but by the nature of contemporary research tools as well. Large data sets now characterize much productive laboratory-based work. You cannot understand the epidemiology of ADHD or autism spectrum disorders, for example, without statistical manipulation of huge databases acquired from a range of institutional sources, state-based, national, international, local. And these require considerable biostatistical creativity and innovation if rare and multiple contributions to relatively common diseases are to be located, hypothesized, and tested. Meetings of one of the interdisciplinary research teams I am observing, for example, often focus on meta-analysis, evaluating the strengths and limitations in reconciling and combining different methods of data collection and different studies to going back to their data sets. 
This can be said of neurogenetics with its common distinctions between wet and dry labs as well, that is, the tacking back and forth between DNA sampling from real-time patient populations and their families who might be located in South Africa or Korea or the Czech Republic, as well as throughout the USA, wherever enterprising scientists can find, sample, and share them. Um, and who must agree to submit to blood draws, hence the name the wet lab, um, and the large data sets, both proprietary and public, which require sophisticated computer hardware and software to mine the dry lab, so that tacking back and forth is a part of these massive projects. Into this medley should also be inserted a discussion of the child as a research tool. The fraught history of children as research subjects in medical experimentation is complex, and I cannot possibly do justice to it in this short paper. Yet I nonetheless suggest that we here consider children in a slightly different capacity, as necessary subject objects to extend fMRI research. In neuroscience labs, children's brains provide developmental baseline data for an emergent field as they are presumed to display not only the range of the pathological but also of the normal with more uh, plasticity than adults are. Yet many people outside biomedical research are troubled by the receding horizon of protection on which children now stand. How young is too young to be placed in the magnet? In the magnet? Without their presence, the laboratory in whose meetings I sit cannot move forward its NIH-funded research, and much time is given over to solving recruitment pro problems. I've been struck how often my notes are about recruitment and not about a lot of other things. A child diagnosed or undiagnosed is research material, but children are understood to be very hard to recruit. This research tool comes attached to its own will and consciousness and to parental time constraints and health concerns as well. Lab chat is full of empathic observations about the specificity of personhood among the children whose brains are under experimental measurement. Quote, do you remember the kid with ADHD who jumped out of the magnet to do push-ups every time we gave him a break, one researcher asked? He told me he was bored of watching The Simpsons, and I get it. There's only so much Simpsons you can take. That's what they show the children in between episodes of filming. Another commented, it's so hopeful looking at a kid's brain. There's so much we may be able to do to help them. We know the mothers will help them too. It's not like adults who aren't going to take care of themselves. So if we had time, we could talk about the trope of childhood innocence and variability that's involved in you know, the way this researcher is talking. Children can be helped. A fourth said empathically of a mother, such a tiny boy, he was so small for his age, his head was so small that it didn't really fit in the magnet, it kept slipping out, we had to prop it. I knew the mother wanted a diagnosis, I didn't know what to say to her, but I wanted to say something, such a tiny boy. More informally, I've been told several times that a noted researcher at another major institution whose website proclaims the importance of LD, learning disability, and ADHD brain studies in his lab has been unable to recruit the needed number of children, perhaps because of parental hesitation. He has thus put his work on the back burner. This focus on recruiting children as a necessary extension of a magnet should also be factored into any description of how assemblages of ideas, practices, and tools structure a new horizon on which an increasing number of laboring scientists now operate. Such complex and interdisciplinary teamwork may sound arcane, but its popularization is of, the substantial, of, is of substantial interest to a widespread public. 
The brains of children and all their substantial neurodiversity are increasingly pictured in the media and flow through our daily lives. For example, a recent article in the New York Times entitled, quote, your child's disorder may be yours too, unquote, quoted parents and pediatricians talking with considerable psychological insight about putting the genealogical pieces into place when a child receives a diagnosis of Asperger's or ADHD or LD. Oh, now we understand this is the same thing Uncle Harry had and the reason he was so odd, you know, and my kids got the same thing Uncle Harry had. So that kind of thinking of empathic re- configuring the genealogy as a piece of how parents deal with this stuff. Quote, as more youngsters than ever receive diagnoses of disorders, the number has tripled since the early 1990s to more than six million in the USA, many parents have come to recognize that their own behavior is symptomatic of these disorders. In effect, the diagnosis may spread from the child to other family members. Like Shadow Syndromes, which is the title of an enduringly popular 1997 book that revealed how a diagnostic category becomes intimately familial, such popular texts also prepare the ground for acceptance of new human categories, their diversity and their pathologization. Does the popular horizon now also include tailored medicines for the whole family? In examining the permeable membrane between scientific and familial practices, my message is really quite simple. As with the diffusion of all things Freudian, you don't have to be trained in Freud's direct texts to have had your worldview transformed by them. Likewise, many sectors of the U.S. population now think about childhood behavioral variation in terms of brain differences, in large measure due to the popularization of scientific information. For example, the mother that I interviewed of a bright high school senior with a spotty academic record told me that she had begun to take her daughter's anxious ADHD jokes seriously only when the teenager begged to be moved to a private girls' school after spending her entire life in local public schools. There, the girl was quickly diagnosed with an LD-ADHD uh, diagnosis at the age of 16. The mother embraced the diagnosis, quote, when I think of the years of struggling over homework, riding herd on Louisa, I'm heartsick. Anger is just built into how I've handled her lack of discipline and it didn't have to be this way. Now I know her brain just works differently. This is a family tale in transition, scientizing intimate experiences, that is the anger and the pushing of the mother, recast through biomedical diagnosis. Might this young adult someday find herself in the scanner or giving blood? That is, she now is a prime candidate for that kind of research. Both the scientists and the pharmaceuticals are currently commonly very, very visible in U.S. cultural life. Two decades ago, both were relatively rare. This assertion leads to a less simple point. Large sectors of the literate public, especially parents, are now being targeted and prepared as consumer of authoritative knowledge in which the scientific study and medicalization of children's brains plays an important role. In both the labs in which I work, scientists are quite aware of this problem. As practitioners in a biomedical world, they intend their research to be helpful to children and their families struggling with cognitive and affective difference, either directly or indirectly. They worry about the abuse of psychotropic drugs and are acutely aware of their street value, their resale value. They are, however, far less prone to speculate on the role their own presence plays in preparing the public to medicalize difference. This makes little sense to them or to many of us when human suffering is unambiguously present, for example, when a family is coping with adolescent schizophrenia or drug addiction. 
But the problem of diagnostic creep is everywhere. The really hard problems of the slippery slope only surface when practical activity happens for most activity, for most scientists. For example, Paul Shattuck, who is a British uh, autism researcher, reported in 2006 that some children, once diagnosed with mild mental retardation, were transferred um, into the LD category and are now being reclassified as autistic as this category expands. In the neuroscience lab, researchers report that the psychiatrists who are their collaborators often see ADHD in many of the research subjects that they themselves see as controls. That is, one group of clinicians versus one group of scientists are negotiating whether these kids are controls or whether they're subjects. That is, whether they've got ADHD. And if we're lucky enough, all of us might have ADHD and, you know, at the rate we're going. In other words, the diagnosis is highly negotiable and steadily moving into medical consciousness. And in his attempt to recruit ADHD adult subjects to his research study, one neuroscientist psychiatrist told his lab team that not many of the people he had met when he spoke to a recent support group, he'd gone to the group to try to recruit people and say, hey, would you like to be part of our study? Um, not many of them would make appropriate subjects. In his judgment, they had just too much going on. And he considered many of them to be bipolar or have Asperger's syndrome as well as ADHD. That is, separating out these diagnostic categories is, again, a matter for um, negotiation. ADHD, like many psychiatric con conditions, unlike what the neuroscientists hope to find, the psychiatrists often work with diagnoses of exclusion. So when a particular patient fa falls within its criteria, it is often under intense negotiation in an interdisciplinary study. That is, you have five out of the 12 traits, you have seven out of the t uh, 12 traits. What if you only have four out of the, um, the the diagnostic traits, do we can consider you in the control group or are you part of the subject group? I mean, it's, there's a certain amount of ambiguity for people who fall in the middle according to psychiatric diagnosis. But as people said to me, we don't assess them, we just get them into the magnet, the researchers told me. At the risk of banality, a close study of the magnet reveals how intimately related to a larger and expansive cultural world of assessment and categorization its subject objects already are. In speaking about developments in science, Paul Rabinow opined, quote, from time to time, new forms emerge that have something significant about them, something that catalyzes previously present actors, things, institutions into a new mode of existence, a new assemblage, an assemblage that makes things work in a different manner. The American government and its pharmaceutical allies are banking on translational medicine to be such an assemblage. Yet imagine pathways in science, as in other life ways, rarely run straight from intention to action. I have argued that when viewed through the research into neurodiversity in children, the scientific assemblage now on the horizon depends on new uses of the older concept of epigenetics. Current usage of epigenetics homes in on the non-coded transmission of inheritance between children and their parents. In studying complex mental and cognitive disorders like learning disability, ADHD, and what were here referred to as diseases of social incapacity, epigenetics as a concept now also indexes how environmental relations have re-entered the extreme and elegant reductionism that accompanied prior genetic models in the life sciences. As with all moments of innovation, scientific instrumentality now finds itself in an open clearing. 
it has the capacity to foreclose that more environmentally capacious vision to operationalize it out of existence. Of course, it is too soon to predict where a focus on epigenetics will lead our scientists and ourselves. So I close with the predictably weak conclusion that we need to both welcome and evaluate the significance of a laboratory shift toward operationalizing epigenetic worldviews. To repeat something I said earlier, scientific <coughs> complexes are forward-thinking, unstable objects of investigation. Fashions in scientific research come and go despite the triumphalist assurances which must structurally be written into the promissory notes of grantsmanship. In a few years, this discussion may feel like prior peons penned to gene therapy. Neuroplasticity and neurodiversity are now widely viewed in science and in public culture as well, as eminently environmentally influenced. Closure of complexity in favor of reduced and elegant scientific evidence is of course the most likely outcome. Yet as we all become more environmentally conscious, concerned in the broadest sense, this is the horizon on which another assemblage of human diversity and sameness may yet be erected. Thank you. I've talked at you a very long time. I'd be very happy to hear comments very and questions. Time, yeah. yeah, so we have time for questions. Um, I'd to open up the floor. Yeah. Um, and could you, sorry, could you say who you are? Sure. You? Uh, my, my, I really enjoyed your speech. Um, I'm not a scientist. My interest in your talk was the way that newer scientific explanations and other scientific explanations have seeped into kind of popular, yeah. popular yeah. imagination. I've got two short, two short questions. That's okay. I'll oh, be very quick. Um, increasingly, amongst um, psychologists and politicians, the first three years of a child's life seem to become more and more important. And um, it seemed, the debate seems to be that um, it's a critical time for the development of synaptic wiring. And so there's a, bit, a debate started in Britain which argues that um, in those first three years, it's important for, for example, parents to talk to their children. And if you abandon your children for, say, 23 hours a day, um, then obviously they'll get no stimulation, but you must talk to them for 30 minutes. And um, there seems to be no evidence that that 30-minute conversation reading in, in, improves a child's brain. But increasingly, in the political world, you become a bad parent if you don't do that. Mm -hmm. And increasingly, mm -hmm. the UK government is really endorsing that. That's not true. What do you think about that? Right. The second question is really a bit more kind of fundamental. It's about the Enlightenment, if you like. That's a um, big jump. Go ahead. <laughs> Enlightenment confidence about individual and collective power was based, was challenged by the belief in fate. And fate was obviously, the, the providers of fate was often religions. Increasingly today, the humanities and science, um, brain, gene, seem to suggest a fatalistic view of humanity. It downplays consciousness and it suggests that we are fate to our genes and our brains. So my question to you is, what, what do you think that means for the question of free will? 
Well, of course, I'm going to sidestep your second question, but let me go to your first one first and say, Henrietta Moore, where, am I, where are you when I need you? Because um, I know that you're working on this question about parent blaming. That's what you told me outside. I think the question of using neuroscience or any science in order to make it very convenient when parents do a bad job, that is, that they're to, brain, they're to blame for their kids running amok, is a very, very old trope. It's just been retranslated into this new format. I was out in Bay Ridge, Brooklyn, which is a white working class outer borough kind of neighborhood a bunch of moms who have IEP kids got together and talked with me they were fabulous I love these women but one of them said and I'm not saying she's right I'm just saying it's a different myth than the one that currently operates she said where are these IEP kids we all got kids with IEPs now they're all kids that are running amok in school we've all got problems here we come from big families you know in the old days the mother would slap the oldest kid on the side of the head the oldest kid would slap the next one the next one would slap the next one and you'd have five kids all in line and nobody ever got a bad report in school now you've got one little darling and they get reported as running amok in school you know and again I'm not arguing that she's right I'm just saying that's a very different consciousness that she's reporting and I think that this use of neuroscience to say something about parenting and that often means alas mothering you know there's a, a this is not a gender analysis but could easily become one is a very old trope that we should be cautious about at the very least on to the enlightenment yes that's a very big question if there are philosophers in the room you know please help me out here um, it seems to me that there's much more of an oscillation than the genes are our fate or our brains are our fate I mean that would have been said when you got the kind of uh, Watson you know now we know our fate is in our genes uh, that's a 1980s statement and I think all the geneticists I'm working with who work on epigenetics would say it's precisely not fatalism we're talking about environment and that's what's so interesting about this moment is this oscillation it's far less reductionist than even when I was looking at say amniocentesis whatever 15 years ago things are moving at a very rapid rate and we'll see where they're going that's really the impact of what I'm trying to struggle with here we don't really know Dolores Malaspina whose name is on the who gave me all those you know the mice and the epigenetics and all that stuff slide she heads up the lab one of the labs that I sit in on and she broke the story about paternal influence on uh, the age of fathers having an influence on schizophrenia outcomes in their offspring that older fathers had a slightly elevated uh, rate of children with schizophrenia and what she says in every newspaper article every scholarly journal article she says look it's a tiny little influence you know it doesn't mean that people shouldn't go ahead and have babies late in life it just means we need to work on finding interventions and cures that are going to make it easier when you do have schizophrenia she's a believer that that male contribution is right you know it's really there but she's also contextualizing it in a social way so I don't think there's a simple answer there called you know the fate I think that that's always a real push within the popular representation of science, but that a good scientist probably knows that it's more complicated than that. Okay, one here and then one there. Go ahead. Hi, thank you very much for a very, very interesting story and, and, and also interesting research. And my, uh, my name is Kaori Sasaki and I'm a sociologist and ex-student of Sarah. And then, uh, this is just a more, more my personal curiosity because I would like to know whether diagnostic diagnosis of especially dyslexia would be universal. The That's reason a why question. is because because my sister and myself because my sister and myself when we were Japan, I was considered to be dyslexia and an autistic and a lot of labeling was putting on because I was so quiet in the school while my sister didn't have that kind of problems. Mm -hmm. But when 
moved to other country. She was considered to be dyslexia. <laughs> there you go. Can I bring you with me as Exhibit A? That's, those are wonderful examples. And then, and then also, also, and then I can't speak Chinese, but she can speak Chinese because she learned Chinese. And then she was very good at And then Chinese teacher thought she was not genius in language. Because, and she can speak now French as well, and Dutch as well, so she can speak five much. Wow. But she was you diagnosed as dyslexia when she was in, <coughs> in a certain country in Europe. So that's what I was wondering, but it's when a, I was in Japan, I was considered to be dyslexia, can be, right. kind of, while my sister was. And that's what I was right. wondering, right. what kind of the strategy or diagnosis system they developed. You know, in the popular imagination and in some studies, they would say that there's less dyslexia in Japan and in Italy because the languages themselves are much more straightforward than in, for example, French or in English, both of which have much more complicated, um, irregular, conjugations and spellings. Uh, Sally Shaywitz, who is a major, major American neuroscience researcher, would say nonsense, it's all the same, you know, across the globe. There are, there's a real controversy about that. Um, but even to think about it in the way that you've just talked about it is so important. I mean, what if it does turn out that there is a regular human variation which has more trouble with some linguistic patterns than others, then what? What have we actually learned about it except that we are a very reading-driven society or a language-driven society in a very different way than we were maybe 20, 30 years ago. So it's a wonderful example, however. You know, I'm very deeply involved with the scientists right now, so I, I take the credibility of what they're doing very, very seriously. And ask me that in sort of two years, I'll probably have a slightly different answer. Um, I think that in their kind of daily practice, a lot of scientists know that it's very complicated socially, and they will say that, and they are obviously very, very smart in what they're doing. I think they feel very pressurized when they're making a public pronouncement to be able to make a lesson that's going to be much more discernible to the public as they imagine it. So some people do better at that than others and some people are more comfortable with that way of sort of thinking about things in an extremely reduced here are the three lessons to take from it kind of way. But I think that when they're actually at work in their own meetings and their own laboratories they know life is a very complicated endeavor and they certainly understand that the social world is changing. I often have to stop people in the epigenetics group and I say to them, I'm here as a researcher, I'm taking notes, you know, you're, you're my tribe, we all go through that every time. But they think I'm actually one of them because my job is when they talk in evolutionary terms and too broad a stroke, my job is to bring them back to the present and to say, hold on a minute, this is what happens to the marriage rate, this is what happens to the divorce rate, this is where we're going in terms of schooling. Let's think about the present tense and not just assume that this is an evolutionary 
genetic trait that sort of is carried over from the Paleolithic. Let's talk about the social circumstances. So I think they're in that world and they know it, but I think they're under immense pressure to come up with this kind of much more limited understanding. There are a lot, maybe I should let you do it. Uh, okay. Okay. Um, Hi. Felicity Card from the Hi. Institute of Psychiatry. Um, I'm intrigued about the, the way you started talking about the, the way in which the term translational mm -hmm. is shifting even, you know, over the last 18 months and two years. Right. And it's a question, a comparative question. I'm a social scientist in the thick of a psychiatric translational research center here. And wow. of course, Britain is very much indebted to the roadmap and it, this is a complicated relationship, I think, between discourses of translation in the States and, yes. and in Britain. And I'm intrigued by the kind of external and internal discussions around translation because when the scientists I work with um, present externally, there's an enormous investment in, you know, translational, will lead to patient exactly. benefit, omics research is the way to go. Once you move internally, um, within the Institute of Psychiatry as a whole, what happens a lot, and I find fascinating, is that there's this incredible unease amongst the epigen epigeneticists and, and neuroimagers because they actually know that it's the psychologists, the cognitive psychologists, who are far, far further along in terms of if you're making an argument about personalized or tailored interventions, it's the cognitive psychologists who you know, could argue that their therapies are personalized or tailored in a way in which we're really far away from a lot of the omics research. So, so then the question of how translational configures and the anxieties, and I, I was wondering what was going on in the States in terms of how translation. You've just described it so beautifully. I mean, there isn't a question. That's actually the response. I mean, that's really a wonderful description. I think there is great unease internally about the limits of what they can do, especially in psychiatry, which has a long history of these diagnostic categories by exclusion without any intervention that necessarily makes sense. I mean, the revamping of kind of electroconvulsive shock therapy with a new name and that they, you know, the medication is not very good and they know that and lots of conditions can't even be medicated and they know that as well. So there's a hierarchy between the psychiatrists and the neuroscientists, there's a very complicated process of they're trying to understand, as you said, what the cognitive psychologists have figured out, what's the combination of personalized therapy and medication that's going to work for an ADHD kid, you know, how much cognitive behavioral stuff is going to go on here. I think they're very much you know, in struggle with those questions right now, and they are under a lot of pressure. When they go to conferences, you don't necessarily want to talk to them because they have to strut their stuff and sound far more um, sure than they are when you talk to them in a more kind of daily work proceeding, and it sounds like you found exactly that. So I think this translational medicine business is both a gift and a poison. It, brings a lot of resources, but it also brings a lot of pressure. And just based on what I said in the beginning about gene therapy, I wouldn't be surprised if they have a limited kind of efficacy, but not a kind of universalizing efficacy at all, a very small efficacy, really. So. Did you have a question? Yeah. So Hi. I'm also interested in this question of your role as anthropologist. Did you speak up a bit? I'm also interested in your role as anthropologist, what people seem to expect of you in the research settings and what you think your contribution is. It sounds to me sometimes, although you said just sitting here observing, 
as if people want you to be. They actually, in one group, they definitely want me to be, and I shoot my mouth off far too much. In the other group, they actually would like to ignore me, and that's just fine. I sit there and take notes, and I talk to people individually. And of course, I mean, I think speaking as an anthropologist, you always contaminate your data because you can never really be just a quiet observer on the side. You can rarely be that. There are moments when you can do that, but you ask questions, and they ask questions of you. And by now, in that epigenetic group, I think they do think that I'm going to bring in certain kinds of resources. And you know, when you have been long time with a group of people, you come to have affectional and work reciprocity kinds of relations. So yes, sometimes I do bring things in that probably change a little bit what they're thinking about. And that's just something I have to take responsibility for at the level of writing when I you know, talk about this work. So. Just to complete on my comment, I, I wouldn't see it so critically as that as something that shouldn't be like a bias, but to me it sounds like a kind of action research. Yeah, well, I don't think you have any choice. I mean, I think that's, you know, left over some, from some very old ethical conundrums in which you can't really wait for the study to be done and then you'll have a response and then you'll be able to do something. I mean, if you have resources, you bring them along, so I'm with you on that. I actually haven't, but I know that there are people who have, and all that kind of brain research stuff certainly speaks to the question you're asking, but I'm going to go look. Give me your email after the lecture, and I'll see if I can find anybody who's working on that and shoot you off an email. I don't know anything about it, but it's important. Hi. I'm Andrew Hertz. I'm a, I'm a clinical pharmacologist. Great. And I'm really <laughs> worried by this whole business of translational, translational hopes and hypes. And because at the moment, prescribing of drugs is so haphazard and inefficient and not as effective as it should be or could be, that this is another order of magnitude away from rationality and evidence. Yeah. And, but apart from that, I wanted to ask you, is there anything that is longitudinal in this research? It sounds a bit odd hastily cross-sectional. We don't actually know what happens to these people or what, how far back we have reliable information Absolutely. about what Absolutely. their life was like. You know, a longitudinal at the NIH means three years out, you know, and we don't know. I've had a physical anthropologist say to me, ADHD is talked about as the best studied of childhood conditions and we know the medication, but since roughly a third of kids outgrow the diagnosis sometime in the process of adolescence, that is as their brains and their bodies continue to mature, we have no idea what effect it means to have been on stimulants from the time they were say six or seven or eight through adolescence when they discover you don't need them anymore for that third. We know very little so about that. What, what is what is the longitudinal ingredient in any of these research right, programs? Right, right. I don't, yeah, I, you know, there may be people who know the answer to that far better than I do, but my 
My impression is that it's very limited, that it's a very small... Yes, if you don't know the answer, you've right. got to ask the question. Yeah, no, I think it's a really important mm. question. I think it's a really important question. But it wouldn't be surprising to discover that longitudinal studies are not very long at all. I think that's a really important point. But there's one, one thing about language learning, that is, um, I wonder why there are no studies of individuals taking a long history of their life with languages, what they felt about languages, what difficulties and ease they had, and how that illuminates their life and their relationships. Mm -hmm. Because that's a sort of obvious question which seems to be totally unexplored. Is that your impression? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, why was I.F. Stone able to learn classical ancient Greece and Greek in his 80s, and many of us lose our capacity to work on languages you know, much earlier than that in our lives? So yes, I think these are wonderful questions. I would only add on the longitudinal study question that every time I bring this up, you know, in a much more flat-footed way than you've very elegantly put it, with friends who are MD physicians, they always blame the kind of family physician for this. They kind of say, well, the family physician doesn't know what they're medicating and if the right specialist were to see the child they would get the medicine right and they would be able to modulate it over time much more successfully. I have no idea whether that's just passing the buck or that's an actually accurate description of what it, of what it means to de-scale medicine. I don't know. Yeah, but I suppose specialists have a, have a much narrower uh, focus and if they're really interested, then they will look at longitudinal things. Right. But right. Uh, generalists don't. Right. Can't. Right. They don't have the time. No. Right. <clears throat> I'm uh, Kevin Rooney, and I'm a teacher. I know nothing about neuroscience, but I'm fascinated by it. I know a little bit about education, a little bit about politics. And I'm interested when you're talking about, a couple of times, about the pharmaceuticals and you know, who's pushing this. I have this wee image in my mind uh, of scientists in their little white cloaks who stuck away in the laboratories doing their stuff and they've been doing it for many, many years. But something happens, the particular moment arrives when the, the neuroscience comes into the mainstream. And what, what I'm curious about, is it, do you think it is the pharmaceuticals and certain people within the agenda sort of pushing this? Or is it more what I maybe think that, for example, in education, I think an awful lot of people involved in education, the policymakers, seem to have lost a bit of faith in the transformational nature of knowledge and education. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and this, the model that we increasingly have of the student seems to become, seems to start to become a damaged one. What was a very, very narrow minority percentage of students increasingly seems to become the dominant theme. And, and even within politics, it's almost as if you look at the Centre for Social Justice in this country, I don't know if you're familiar with that other stuff with government policy, they increasingly look to, to neuroscience to find answers. It almost appears as if there's a decline in the belief in social solutions mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. And, and a retreat from politics. And I'm just really curious about what do you think the balance is in terms of the drivers that are pushing this? <laughs> well, that's in a way why I started by saying that this research project is very unruly. And I think you do have to start with deinstitutionalization. You have to start with the transformation um, in the 1970s of the school scene, at least in the United States, where school psychology I mean, became a gatekeeper to all these processes. You have to talk about the um, IDEA and the uh, ADA, which are our key 
landmark pieces of legislation that enable children to get a diagnosis and remediation. I mean, I think there's not one thing that's driving it. I think that the neuroscience and the, uh, the pharmaceuticals are all a piece of a lot of other transformations that were already ongoing before the capitalization of the life sciences started to hit its stride. I don't know whether we're at the stride yet or not, but certainly from 1980 on, I'll take Paul Rabinow's you know, basic uh, assumption on this one, something changed in the United States at least around the tax code, around the way universities relate to patenting, about the way researchers are trained, about the way pharmaceutical investment continued. That's whatever, 30 years old. It's not very old, but it's a lifetime away from what those things meant at earlier times. So that's the piece of it that I'm more or less looking at, but the changes in education, I mean, I had to read something about the history of U.S. education to start to understand this. How could you be diagnosing so many kids, and what does it mean that they're so test-driven right now? I mean, I don't know what's going on here, but certainly from the Bush administration out, the pressure on all this No Child Left Behind business where the federal government does not fund, but they do defund schools that don't actually make the grade. So uh, what do you do about the education? And under a kind of ideology that many of us would agree with, which is to say, equality. You are not going to let poor kids off the hook here. You're not going to say that a black or a brown child growing up in a substandard neighborhood should get a less decent education. Well, that sounds like democracy to me. I'm all in favor. But then when you say, and we're going to figure it out exclusively by testing and never putting in any other resources, and you know we're just going to fail out the school, you've got yourself a huge social problem. And that's going on at the same time as all the stuff that I was trying to talk about here. So I don't think there's one route in. I think there are multiple kind of assemblages which are lining up in favor of this kind of biological thinking about the individual child. But what I'm trying to say, the import of our work is, it's not an individual question. Something is shifting in the social landscape which should not be put just on the individual child or the family doing a better or worse job of coping with a, what is now perceived widely to be a biological difference. There's something else going on here. Hi, Hillary. How are you? Good. Good. <laughs> Very nice talk. Thank you. Your last bit, I must just comment on discussing what was happening in British universities yeah. during the yeah, 80s, yeah. where the sort of compulsory um, marriage between <laughs> industry and the university was really, um, you know, and, and it was a, not really compulsory, but it was one of the other others. An arranged compulsory marriage. Yes. All right, I like that. Sitting down discussing, and this is just pure gospel observation, a variety of my American um, science friends would say that what they saw going on here was worse than what was going on in the States. So let that be no comfort to you. <laughs> I like to imagine you have more social democracy than we've got, but I guess I don't get to do that. <laughs> After being towed across the Atlantic, Atlantic by the faction they there. Right, right. Um, but more the bit I wanted to return to, and I found it so fascinating, is the discussion of the the, the ethnographer um, talking with the, the scientists and all the rest of the um, assembly of persons. Um, one of the things you were saying, I found absolutely fascinating, that is that um, talking with um, a loosely called the community who might be researched. Um, might be involved in this sort of study. What um, people doing that kind of work um, say amongst ourselves that it's the very asking the question 
that gets people to think. Mm -hmm. And they say mm -hmm. so. Mm -hmm. so Absolutely. Saying that about the, Absolutely. About the, uh, the scientists that yeah. And I do think that's one of the most extraordinary things to watch when talking to scientists. So I think I would have said that was one of the curious functions of being any kind of a social scientist. This is a much longer philosophical question, and it goes back to your enlightenment question, as far as I'm concerned. And that is to say, speaking as an anthropologist, but I totally point well taken, Hillary, about the social sciences in general. We're just the despised underside of science. Too cool. That's the end of the story. You know, we have less social standing, perhaps, than they do, and people posture around about it, and whether you know we're more scientific as sociologists than they are as scientists. But we're all cut from the same cloth of trying to bring down to scale so that it is not fate and it is not God. It is, in fact, an empirically researchable set of questions. That's the great beauty of materialism as a set of methodologies, and in that sense, yes, of course, that's why the scientists welcome questions in the first place. And the other thing I'd say, having just said something nice about science, is that I think the only scientists who welcome me into their lab are, I think there's a huge bias in my research. And that's because the good guys welcome me into their lab. You know, the people who want to talk to me are philosophically very savvy. They can see, by the time I walk in and stumble in and try to explain in one paragraph what my research is and would they allow me to sit in quietly, they already know what value it will have to them to be able to talk about this with somebody who's skilled in figuring out what they're actually talking about, that that's my job for them. And so when you ask that question about, you know, where am I in terms of methodology, it would be coy of me to say that I think it's a bad idea. I do think it's contaminated data, but I don't think that's a bad thing. You know, so I'm, I'm fine with it. But I do think that that's the underside of the question you're asking. Thank you very much oh, um, for the talk. I, I, was, um, I was really interested in the idea of the diagnostic creep and, you know, the families that might say, ah, oh, well, you know, that's probably what Uncle Bob had, etc. And I just wondered the extent to which, um, you know, from the fa family labor perspective of it, the, the families or the parents themselves uh, what kinds of reflexive and comparative analysis are they engaged in, in terms of the social context within the That's a wonderful question. Made. Faye and I are trying to figure it out. We just wrote a paper that's going to go into a disability studies journal, and we've called it the social distribution of moxie, because it's about the gutsiness, mainly of the moms, and how they've learned to deal with having a kid for whom they must advocate all the time if the kid is not to, get, to fall through the cracks. And plenty of kids do fall through the cracks, and plenty of kids don't have parents who can do this for them, so it's very complicated. But one of the things, and I do think this is especially Faye's contribution, is we've come to see that they are already the second or third generation of activists here. That is, you know, if you go back and you look at the social activism in our country of the 60s, a lot of things occurred, including disability rights legislation that came out of civil rights legislation, so that by now, there's a kind of an agenda in the social milieu that wasn't there 30 years ago. And I think parents pretty routinely learn that they're going to have to be up and fight for their kids' rights. And not everybody can do that. And it's very hard. And there's a lot of intimidation. But a very large number of people who are not you know, necessarily heroes, they're just ordinary people trying to make it easier for their kids' lives and to nurture a differently diagnosed child. A lot of people have learned how to do this, and that's the good news. You know, they do believe that they have to be, in some senses, reflexive about it. The cry we always hear is, what if, you know, little Susie didn't have me for a mother? 
you know, and everybody says it. We thought it was us in the beginning, you know. Oh my God, I spent so much time on the phone arranging services and fighting with the school and dealing with the lawyers and the Board of Ed. And, uh, turns out everybody does that, not just me and my fancy job. And so learning that was a very important part of our research. Are there any of them that actively resist that? And yes, that absolutely. Absolutely, who say not everybody wants to fight City Hall, you know. And also I do think we started out, and this is another one of those contamination bias questions where I'm not sorry with our response, but it's very complicated. We started out wanting to look at learning disabilities, and we still want to look at that, and that's what most of our lives are about, and our research lives, and I can tell you more stories when we have time about the different groups I look at. But you can't separate out learning disability from other diagnostic categories. Part of the diagnostic creep is that everybody now has something and most people have more than one thing. And if you have enough middle class resources to get your kid re-diagnosed, you're likely to get a different diagnosis the second time around. And I've taken life stories of young adults who have these diagnoses who basically say, well, when I was in second grade, I was diagnosed with this. And in fourth grade, I got that. And in seventh grade, I got this. And on and on and on and on. So that, you know, I think a lot of people are very concerned about whether that's really an appropriate thing to do in the first place. They know they've got something, but what if they got? And if you've got a kid who's someplace on what is now diagnosed as the autism spectrum, actually, you're more likely in our limited interviews to be much more comfortable with what you're getting for your kid. Is that because you don't think that your kid can, in fact, move into the mainstream as successfully as some kids who have other diagnoses? I don't really know that yet. But one mother said this thing. I said this the other day. I think you've heard this before. Um, I was, this is a mother with a kid with autism, and I said something about, I have an interview schedule question, this is what, what's your hope for your kid in the future, essentially, what do you think will happen to your child in the, in the future, and she said, you know, I want my kid to learn his ABCs, but I want him to grow up and be a good person, I want him to be socially useful and feel good about his work in society, and we should want that for all our kids, not just our kids with IEPs, with special ed diagnoses. Hallelujah, you know, that's a very good comment on her part, and she is not going to fight about the school so much, but she is going to think about the kind of whole normative person there. So. Okay, I think we have time for just two more I'm sorry, I'm talking questions. too much. No, that's okay. Um, you've been brilliant, and um, thank you so much for Never mind, so never mind. Don't, don't give me any more kudos. Let's just have some um, questions. Okay, last question. Um, my name is Astrid, I'm a student Hi. Yes. So in thinking about your own work, I wondered what you, you also thought of it as well as a bit of translational work. Yes. Having yourself gone, you know, from the uterus, from the amniotic fluid, more precisely. Wait till I hit old age research. Possibilities <laughs> 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 are endless here. Yeah. I wondered, like, you know, in, you know, in thinking about you know, uh, the, your own research in that translational way, whether, you know, what you were talking about in conceiving the New World Order also relates or connects to that's a very generous and wonderful question and it's very yes stickiness is a great word I just wrote that down and underlined it while you were speaking Astrid I think it's a really good word I do think that all these diagnostic categories there's something going on here that I haven't quite got a handle on but I do think we're all being put on a spectrum in one form or another you know we all have a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it, there is a there is a spectrum of diagnoses and people can move flexibly or somewhat flexibly between some of them but in the long run everybody's going to have 
something. You know, I think that's part of the capitalization of the life sciences. Again, I don't know what the British situation is very well, but in the US, people would say, well, no, a former head of the NIH, according to Joe Dumit said this, nobody over the age of 30 should be on less than five lifelong drugs. You know, we need pharmaceuticals for your bones and your heart and your blood pressure and your this and your that. And, you know, maybe we do. I mean, I'm not even arguing that we don't. I'm just saying, look here, there's a real change that we're all undergoing here in which this is all happening. And the stickiness, as you said, about how things move across the spectrum and across the life cycle, I think it's really, really very striking. Okay, well, on that note, um, I just thank you very, very much for such a wonderful talk. Thank you all very much.